Michael Fritzjus. Welcome to the podcast. And I really hope I said your last name properly. It, it's a little bit, it's close enough. It's close. It's, <laughs> yeah. Fr- Fritzjus. Yeah. Fritzjus. Yeah. I can blame it on being French Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> You're putting extra sounds in there that don't belong. Well, it's good to be here. It's really good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. So uh, just to give you people a, a brief resume of, of you, uh, you're the CTO and also the founder of Arch DevOps, which is a tech company out of uh, St. Louis. Is that correct? That is correct. Still, I haven't fired myself yet. <laughs> so why did you start this tech company? You know, I. it's kind of a funny story. So I come from a background where I started off as a software developer. I got into QA. I got into automation. And with a, with a series of successful contracts that I had done as just a, a, a contractor working for recruitment firms, I thought, I should start a business. I could do this. How hard could it be? You know, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's uh, spoiler alert, it's, it's freaking difficult to start a business. Actually, it's really easy to start a business, but it's really hard to like make it go. And um I have I have been on the entrepreneurial path, sometimes walking it, sometimes falling and getting drug, but I'm doing it. I can't I can't see myself doing anything different now. But yeah, it was it was probably a mix of hubris and blind dumb luck that led me to say I'm going to start this business. And uh, here I am. Now it's been almost six years, and holy moly, I've got a lot of gray hair under this hat. <laughs> and on your beard, obviously. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's hanging out. So yeah. Uh, so the, just to my listeners, because I usually interview artists and scientists, and I haven't really talked about technology. So what's interesting is the reason I haven't really talked about technology is because I was actually working in software um, quality assurance management for gosh, I've been an employee for like twenty years or so. Um, and recently, I also incorporated and I have my own tech company. So I felt that I finally had the freedom to talk about the tech industry. It's very different uh, when you are employed by someone. They, it, it can be tricky to speak your mind about certain tech industry issues. Uh, so we're going to be really talking about very um, industry-specific things. But at the end, I'd really like to touch on uh you know, the general concept of automation and uh, its impact on society. So uh, Fritz, which is your nickname, which I adore, by the way, (laughs) I would like to start by talking about software quality assurance. Now, again, for the listeners who are not tech familiar, but who still want to listen, software quality assurance is kind of like the way I describe it. It's kind of like having an inspector check out your house after it's been built. It's a good. It's it's what people do to um, to confirm that the software is of a high quality. So that can include software testing for bugs. It can include usability, security, and all those things. Um, so, and what's interesting here is that Fritz comes from the development side, and I don't. I come from you know the uh, business kind of. Uh, um, uh, manual testing side of things, for example, or, or maybe people will call that biz dev. I'm not really sure. Um, so we're, we're going to have an interesting conversation here. So <laughs> where to start? Um, in your opinion, why should QA departments use automation? Well, I think it's, 
it's when you've got it, when you've got the testing process down to a science. And I think we, as a, as a field, you know, we're testing artisans, basically. When, when we're testing, we're really, we're really trying to form a hypothesis. We're, we're saying, we think the system is going to do this. Now, we're not sure if it will because we've never really performed this experiment before. So let's see what happens. Um, once you've established that, yeah, we're pretty sure that it's going to do the same thing. You put this input in, you get this output out, yada, yada, yada. Okay, um, if there's no longer any guesswork, any experimentation, then that's why you would approach automation. It, it takes the grunt work and the time-consuming aspects of testing out so that it frees you up to spend your human brain cycles on something that you're like, I'm not really sure what's going to happen if I do this, but let's try it. See what happens. What the heck? That's the essence of testing. Yeah. And it's interesting because I have been calling myself an automation skeptic. And we laughed about this before the podcast started recording. Mm -hmm. uh, he's like, you know, Fritz was like, what do you mean skeptical? Are we going to fight? And uh, I assure you, we, we won't. It's not in my nature. Uh, but um, one of the things that I agree with you on is something like form fields. You know, uh, filling out a form is a very kind of almost predictable action, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can use all sorts of test data. It's easy to automate. It's one of the things that I almost always recommend automating mm -hmm. is automate your form field. The thing that you said that I want to touch on, though, is something that's very common in the industry but isn't widely used in practice, which is it'll free up your time for more creative pursuits like exploratory testing or, you know, other... Um, let's say, human-led activities. What I'm seeing instead in the industry is that automation is replacing uh, the creative component of testing. Do you want to comment on that? Oh, my goodness. That, seriously, Julie, is the bane of my existence. And that is why when I'm, when I'm on an engagement with a client, I have to spend like 80% of my time in their heads because, unfortunately, that is how a lot of companies see it. They see it as a cost-cutting measure, but then they're like, wow, the cost is the people. If we can free up time, we can get rid of people. Profit. And it's like, no, like you're missing the point. You've got all kinds of folks here that understand all the nooks and crannies of your system and you want to fire them? Like what? And like, no, that's just, that just creates a cycle. So yeah, I mean, I know that companies do that sort of thing, but the people at the top that are making that decision also are not the ones that fully understand how much human ingenuity goes into good, solid software testing. It's like a, it's almost treated like it's a dark art. And I don't know how deep, I don't know how deep you want to go on that. Well, we got plenty of time. I can talk about this. Well, yeah, let, okay. let's go on on this because I really do want to kind of be pro software testing mm -hmm. uh, in this episode yeah. um, just because it's we're both very passionate about it and we're very passionate. It seems like we agree that companies tend to use automation as an excuse to get rid of the software testers and replace the entirety of software testing by uh, developers, yeah. like essentially to put developers in charge of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I see that as a huge fallacy. Yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And, you know, in part, I think, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying before about how how QA, how software testing is treated almost like, 
like a dark art. Like, ooh, it's mysterious. We're not sure what the testers are doing, but, hmm, they're finding bugs. It's a good thing that they found that bug before the customers did. Wow, that was a close one, right? But the vast majority of leadership at companies that make decisions like what you and I are talking about, they don't know. Like, they don't know what goes into testing. They don't They don't understand things like, like pairwise testing or stress testing or anything like that. They're just like, just find the bugs. We want to make sure our customers don't get pissed and uh, just find the bugs. They don't get it. They don't get it. So, you know, I think first and foremost as testers, like it's our job to get really good at communicating with people at all levels of a company. And I don't know that there are many other departments where that's a necessity. And, and it's unfortunate because over the years when I've, when I've been talking with different testers and, and working with them, they're really technical. They really know their stuff, but they are not able to present in front of leadership. Like if there's a, a C-suite, anybody in there, they just, oh my goodness, they get all nervous and farty and they can't talk. Um, and that's unfortunate because we know a lot of really cool stuff that can help benefit every company, but we just can't get the mouth words out. You know what I'm saying? I think, I think the advocacy, you know, because I'm a huge fan of QA advocacy. Mm -hmm. I, I'm really big on that. Um, but I think that often it doesn't reach the people that it needs to reach. Uh, I see this a lot in large corporations, for example, where, um, the QA advocacy will get essentially stopped at the dev manager level or, you know, things like that where it doesn't reach the executive. So I'm curious to know for somebody like yourself who comes in as a contractor or consultant, how do you um, do advocacy in favor of quality assurance? Well, I kind of feel like I've got an edge over the people that are already in QA there. So, I mean, as a consultant, I'm kind of inserting myself higher up the stack. You know, and that's, I mean, that's by design, but I mean, that's also the higher ups are the ones that are bringing me in the decision makers. It's not, it's not a dev manager. It's not a hiring manager. It's nobody in HR. It's like the chief technology officer talking with another chief technology officer, come on in and help us do our thing. Right. Um, so as an advocate, it's like, yeah, you kind of have to be at or above the level of the person that is stopping you. And, um, I don't have a quick answer for that, Julie, and I, I hate that. I because it's like, That's you know, okay. what if somebody's in in a situation where they're like, okay, I'm a senior tester, okay, and there's like seven layers of leadership above me, between me and the person that I need to talk to, you know, how do you kind of crawl up there and do that? And um, actually, I do, I do have an answer. I do have an answer. It's it's kind of getting into people's heads and helping them feel safe you know when any anytime we have a situation where it looks like we're going to go over somebody's head well that causes fear what if they make me look bad oh my goodness and it takes patience it takes a little while but just endearing yourself to the people around you building good rapport with folks and building good rapport with the dev managers with the with the directors with the vps and with the cto and with everybody else that's up at the top it takes time. It takes time. And the reason why it takes time is because people have a fear reaction to change many times. They're like, oh, we're resistant to that. We don't want to, we don't want to change. Things appear to be working just fine. And it's like, things are not fine. We're testers. We know <laughs> your software's broken. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because um, do you feel, I'm curious to know if, the, if you think that there are some parts of testing that just can't or should never be automated. Hmm. If you've got a system that has a ton of variety when it comes to inputs, like there's a way to automate testing for that. Like let's say you go through every possible permutation and it's like, holy moly, there's 10 billion combinations of data. You don't need to automate every single combination. You don't need to. You There's a way, there's a mathematical and statistical way to pick and choose what what data sets to use that give you the best coverage in the shortest amount of time. But some companies, I mean, even if it works out to be like 10,000 possible combinations, they'll say, well, we need 10,000 tests. And it's like, no, you don't. Like if, if even one test, like let's say you're doing it and an automated test takes one minute to run, you know, that's 10,000 minutes. I can't do the math, but how long is that? That's pretty long. Um, even if you spread it out on multiple machines and run them in parallel, it still is going to take a while. So I don't think that is one of the things that should be automated. And I think when com when companies go that direction where they're like, we got to get 100% coverage, it's like, okay, that's a tell. Something, something jankety is going on here. You don't fully understand what it is that you're automating. You don't fully understand the value of each and every test, but you at least want that warm fuzzy to see like, 100% coverage. It's like, what does that mean? What, like, talk to me about that. What do you get if you get 100% coverage and you can't ship because it took this long to to get through the testing, right? Um, it really, it, it invites some need. Huh? Like, do you actually see people who, I've, I've, I've never come across a company that wanted 100% coverage. It was always uh, at least fighting to get at least 25% of coverage, you know? I, I don't know. Have you seen it, that in your experience? Yes, I have. And wonder wow. of wonders, um, things didn't really tend to get done. And it caused no end of grief and stress and yelling. And it's like, guys, like what, what happens if you get there? I mean, like, how are you going to maintain that? You're going to spend the rest of your lives chasing your tail and they're operating from a position of fear. I have seen it. It, it sucks. You know, it's one of the questions I ask. I'm like, what's your ideal? Like, what kind of coverage do you want to have? And if they give me something above like 60%, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. But inside my head's going, ding, ling, 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 you know, cause it's like, that's a warning bell there, boys and girls. Um, but yeah, I mean it, oh yeah. I hope, I hope they never go that direction where you are that that would just be atrocious well I, it's a yeah i mean I, like i said i haven't i'm more i find in canada and we're going to talk about the differences between um, canada and uh between canadian and american tech companies because i've worked both um but in canada i haven't seen as much um tech companies want 100 percent coverage most of the time it's trying to convince them to even do qa at all mm -hmm. it's a it's a very uh you know, people are very anxious to get their products out in Canada. We're very much behind in in, in innovation, so um, that's something that, uh, that definitely doesn't come up too often. Um, I wanted to uh, to to talk to you about exploratory testing. That's where my heart is. I love exploring applications. I love not having a test plan um, or having a very um, rudimentary plan and just going through the system. I think it was, it might have been James Bach who came up with exploratory testing. I hope I'm not wrong, but I'm sure he's, um, he's definitely written about it. Uh, 
do you have any experience with exploratory testing? Do you enjoy it at all, or is that something you don't do in your in your work? I do have experience with it, and I do enjoy it because I think I'm as nerdy as I am. I still consider myself mostly a right brain thinker, you know, and kind of using that creative outlet to say, all right, how can we ingeniously figure out where the bugs are, you know, and it's almost like you can feel them in the system. Like, you know, they're in there, they're in there somewhere. There's got to be at least one fat bug. How do we go find it? And you kind of, you kind of apply that human ingenuity toward something that is basically a dumb brick. That's only ever going to do what you tell it to do and try to cajole, try to tease that bug out of there. You know, if I was a bug, where would I be hiding? And then you start to ask yourself questions like, well, what kinds of bugs historically have we found before? And that adjusts the type of testing that you do. It's just, it's neat, you know, and, and I'm the same way. I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, I mean, a lot of the places where I've, where I've been plugged in over the years have had at least an idea of a test plan. And that's great. You know, if you've got like a junior QA person that's learning the ropes, learning about the system, then they got to start somewhere. But when they elevate to the point where, okay, we can get into exploratory testing and we can reach weird spots in the system. It's like, how did you get there? It's like, I don't know. I'm just a tester. I'm doing my thing. Um, it's really rewarding because then you get, it's like nobody else thought to do that. Yes. Look how smart I am. I mean, it sounds like hubris, right? But you know, it, it's good. It's a, it's a good dopamine hit. I'm addicted to that stuff. It's a heck absolutely. of a drug. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's a great dopamine hit. Um, and also then sometimes you run into the case of the, the famous four words in QA, which is, which are, um, I told you so, Oh, <laughs> which is one of those things. Let's talk about that for a second here, because that's something that I find I've run into way too often in my career where I found what in my perception was a, a an absolutely critical bug, which months later turned out to be a critical bug, but was, you know, um, set aside. So uh, how often have you run into in those cases and how do you manage that as a consultant? Well, I've had it done to me. I've had it done to me where I didn't listen for whatever reason. I thought, well, I mean, I feel like I've got more information about X and I'm not going to say you don't know what you're talking about, but one of the things like, like what they were saying didn't quite jive with what I perceived as reality and they ended up being right and they played the I told you so card and it's like dude that does not feel good and I I hate to I hate to say this because I mean each one of us is in charge of our own emotions or we should be anyway but when someone says that to me I'm inclined to not ever listen to them again because I don't want to give them the opportunity to like lord it over me remember that time i was right and you were wrong for it ha ha 25 years later we're still laughing about it. no you're laughing about it i'm still freaking salty about it and i still don't like that so i'm like i don't want people to feel that way about me right so when we when we do that and when we when we play the i told you so card um you know, what we're doing is, and we, and I keep coming back to fear. I mean, this is one of the things that I, I find really slows a lot of companies down. It's just different flavors of fear, right? People are afraid of looking stupid and they don't want to look dumb. They don't want to look like they're not intelligent in front of their colleagues, their managers, any decision maker, because 
I know at least here in the U.S., there is a pervasive fear in the QA field of I'm going to lose my job if I can't prove my worth. And if some other clown shoe comes along and makes me look like a dingus because I just didn't get the answer right, then I look bad. You're risking my livelihood. You're risking my ability to provide for my family. So I try very hard to be mindful of people's body language. And if I'm talking to them and they've got tells about them where, okay, they're kind of closed off. They're not feeling secure. Maybe their arms are crossed. Their shoulders are hunched. They're not making eye contact. They're kind of mumbling out answers and stuff. It's like, how can I serve you? How can I make you feel safe? Because I'm not the enemy. I know a consultant is like, oh my goodness, he's going to take our job. He's going to automate us out. I'm not here to do that. Like I'm here to work myself out of a job. I don't want you guys to need me. Okay. So in three months, six months, nine, 12 months, like how best can I serve you? And, and I, I would love for you guys to trust me and know that I am your champion. I'm here to advocate for you. I want you to be awesome. I want you to be the hero. I'm just the Sherpa, you know, we'll climb the mountain together. I'll carry all your heavy crap for you, but you're going to make it to the top. Cause I'm going to be like, come on, come on, you know, push, push, but we'll get there. But yeah, I mean, Oh my goodness. I have, like I said, I've had it done to me. I've seen it done to other people. And it's like, hashtag cringe guys. Come on. Like this, this is why the <laughs> comedy culture is so free. But, but it's funny because I actually think about it on the flip side. We turned it into a game in, in one of the companies I worked for where I was in charge of QA. And um, we would always uh, go up to marketing and be like, don't make us tell you I told you so. Oh. It was <laughs> it was a game. But it was it – was, it, see, the way I see it is that it's our favorite words in an environment that makes it playful. Yeah. So – I, I'm a huge um, proponent of playful environments where I find that the best way to build rapport is to have like kind of like a, a very casual, but um, to have a casual but competent team. In other words, uh, you should all always have people who who know what they're doing, but also who are her game with like, kind of like that camaraderie, mm-hmm. you know, camaraderie is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a we had a team where you know, QA was, was, uh, very prideful of saying, I told you so. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, uh, it, it took one really big, massive fire for that, that, that kind of camaraderie to build up as in like the first, I told you so came out after that fire. Mm-hmm. And then that was it. Like <laughs> it was always like bugging marketing going, Hey guys, don't make us tell you, I told you so. Oh, so I, I see it as like, I, I know what you, I know what you're saying. I know that doing so can create a, a negative environment, but I think it can be turned on its head and, and be used for humor sometimes from QA professionals. Absolutely. You know, I, I do remember fondly where that was done in a, in a playful way. There was a contract I had um, a couple, two or three years ago by now. Man, the time flies. 2018, that's when that was. That's wild. Um, but when I when I had that contract, one of the things that they would do is this particular team was working with an admittedly rickety software, okay? And and the automation, the test automation was rickety as well. It kind of mirrors the the shakiness of the software it's meant to test, right? And they had this donkey. It was like a little like a little toy donkey, like a plastic donkey. And if you broke the build, you had to proudly display the donkey on your desk until somebody else broke the bill. Like even after it's been fixed, you kept the donkey. 
That's brilliant. It well, it was, and then that donkey went missing. I don't think anybody like threw it away or be like this freaking donkey rah, rah, and just hide it in a drawer somewhere. Nobody could find it. Somebody broke the bill, and there's like, where's the donkey? Well, it was just here. I don't know where. Maybe the custodian picked it up. They got a bigger donkey. They got like, like a like a full sized <laughs> like stuffed animal donkey from Shrek. That donkey, donkey, you know. And so yes. they would they would put that on top of the desk, and it's like, oh my goodness, this one guy like the architect on that team had the donkey for like a month. I'm like, bro, are you okay? I can't figure this thing. I said, you'll get it. And I'm like, got to get rid of that donkey. Like, do you want me to fall on the sword? I'll take the donkey for a little bit. I don't care. He's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just you know, but it, you know that it made the rounds. I had it for like a week and you know, all the developers and testers and BAs all work together. And it's like, everybody had that stupid donkey for some span of time, but it was funny. Cause when you just walk past and you'd be like, Oh, Justin's got the donkey. All right, still. It's hilarious. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about tech culture in general for a minute right, here yeah. because my my girlfriend works in auditing for, for the government, right? So it's completely different culture. Um, the government in general, I, I live in Ottawa, so I'm surrounded by civil servants. Um, but even people who, don't, who aren't familiar with the tech world don't really understand its culture. And I feel, in a, in a sense, privileged to work in tech, uh, to have worked in tech for so long. And um, while it's not the same everywhere, but I mean, I worked in video game, in the video game industry, you know, I worked in like the hotel industry. I worked in some private companies where it was like, we had beers on our desks. Where we had, you know, catered breakfast and, you know, I had like all the favorite movie figures with, that talked on my desk and we would pull pranks all the time. I mean, prank culture in tech is is a little crazy. And I like to compare it to the television series Silicon Valley. I don't know if you've watched it, but it's very similar to that where there was a time in, in technology where we had all the perks. We had everything. We had, you know, paid paintball days and like fishing expeditions and we'd have like like I said catered breakfasts and and wine and beer fridges at work and giant xbox you know um uh playrooms kind of things uh it's it's very unique isn't it mm -hmm. in in the world of work it is it is and and notably what I didn't hear listed and maybe this, maybe this is just a US thing but we would have nerf gun wars um you know, we had, I, I remember a place like my very first job that I got as a full-time employee where I was in like a testing role was at a startup. And I kid you not, within the first week, I mean, Nerf darts would just be flying around and I'm just like, what the heck have I gotten myself into? And I I armed myself. I, I went and got a little pistol and I'd have it as a sidearm. But I got really freaking accurate with that thing, and I ended up getting um, – I put like an actual rifle scope on it, like a red dot scope, and I was able – so here's, here's another funny thing too. Like they were so hardcore about it that I took it over, and one of the IT guys was like, give me that pistol, and he took it, and he went into a back room, and he came back out five minutes later. He's like, here, try this, and I tried it, and it shot like three times harder. I'm like, what did you do? He had modded it. He modded it. He just, he's like, I just drilled out the air restrictor and I'm like, thanks. And I come to find out like he makes his own. He goes and buys like AR-15 springs, like an, like a, it's a, a rifle, 
but it's like an actual weapon and he just cuts them into thirds and he just uses those for his guns. And I'm like, what the heck? And I work here. So, um, yeah, there was one time there was a, a power outage and the home partition went down. So everybody's work was like not accessible. So we like staged a raid. I went running upstairs and I was going to go assassinate one of my team members upstairs. Just pop, pop, two to the head, two to the chest. And I'm like, well, he's not even here. He's not even at his desk. What in the world? But yeah, it it is such a weird culture. And I'll tell you, one of the things that's weird too is the way that we build rapport and communicate. And I guess I was like today years old until I realized like that's not weird. It actually is weird because like you have been in tech like my whole life, right? But we'll just quote movies or situations from games or there's like a particular episode of Star Trek Next Generation will be like Shaka when the walls fell. And then whoever goes, ha ha, it's like, hey, new best friend. All right. <laughs> I get that. He gets me. He understands me. Right. But that's just how you you kind of feel people out and you understand more about them and their background. And it's like, OK, I can make references to Buckaroo Banzai around this guy, but I can't make references to it with this lady over here because like she just looks at me like what, you know. They're in marketing. They don't know. So, <laughs> well, not just not just marketing, but also I I find it absolutely fascinating the different subcultures in tech. Where you know, like when I worked for video video game industry, mm -hmm. it was like this. It's exactly what you described. It's like you know we didn't have Nerf guns because of course we're Canadian. I mean we're we're just about to ban airsoft here in Canada. So you shoot them and I mean, be like sorry, gonna... <laughs> exactly sorry. But I mean you know I worked in in one tech shop where uh, I brought in um you know remote control racing cars. Mm -hmm. So we build like gigantic ramps and it was just like almost to the level of being embarrassing. Yeah. Um. But then there are other tech nerds that are completely non-pop culture, very serious, kind of, you know, very um, more, I don't want to say conservative, but conservative in the sense of being quiet. And so you have those that don't fit into this kind of um, more pop culture side of tech. I find that equally fascinating, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's just a, a very interesting observation. Yeah. There's a guy that is, that, that reminds me, he's like, incredibly technical, very deep, but he's also very quiet and introverted. He's a good friend of mine. I keep up with him still. He was at that Nerf gun place that I was talking about. And, you know, if you take the time to get to know them, it might not be as quick, but it'll be a lasting thing. And I found out, wow, he does all kinds of things with electronics and he is an avid guitarist. He loves, um, he loves doing microprocessor coding. He gets Doom running on like friggin' everything, uh, like his microwave, whatever. Um, he actually made he made a quadcopter back before drones were cool out of an old Linksys wireless router, and he figured out like how to control it from a radio controlled thing. But it was it was on the eight hundred two eleven signal, so he was flying this thing around using a Wi Fi signal, and I'm just like, and. I'm like, this is amazing. Like he just does this sort of stuff. And there was another time too, where he, we, it was, this is back when, um, the little helicopters, like not, not the little portable drones, like what you see flying around all the time that you can buy in a hobby store now, but like the little two rotor helicopters and it's line of sight driven. It's driven on infrared. And, uh, my buddy, the guy who worked in the same office room as me, he would fly it around over this guy's desk. And he's like, man, I hate when, when Brad flies these things over my desk. 
So he went home and he's like, all right, I'm going to get a gigantic infrared light LED and I'm going to look up the codes on this helicopter and I'm going to scramble it. So if he just blinks a light at a certain code or whatever, it'll just drop it out of the air. And it worked. It worked the first time. As soon as it went over his desk, it just boom, hit the floor. And, and Brad's like, what happened? <laughs> we had this thing barking like all kinds of crazy signals at the helicopter. And it was like, well, this guy's louder than you. So I'm going to do the thing. Crash. But yeah. Well, I think I think this is why people consider, um, you know, tech – uh, tech nerds, tech creatives, whatever you what you you want to call them, uh, really. But but um, people who work in technology are generally considered as creatives. Yeah. They're generally considered as uh, people with uh, high levels of ingenuity and perhaps low levels of social kind of coherence in a way because we're so in it knee deep into this world of of like digits and and data and you know what ifs, right? So um, I find that um, that while we're labeled as creatives, it's uh, I guess what I'm trying to, to to drive to is that within the tech sector itself, there are different kinds of creativity. And what I'm finding, and and the reason I want I also wanted to have you on is because you come at automation as a developer. So what I'm finding is that a lot of the um, priority is is in the hands of developers, as in it's starting to feel like developers are trying to take all the non-dev jobs. Mm. Um, do you do you do you feel that perception? Um, do you want to comment on that? You know, I think it varies from company to company. I mean, there's always going to be there's always going to be people that want to be all things to all people, right? Um, they are they're trying to be relevant. They're struggling to look like they can. They can just do whatever, right? And that's some people, that's some companies. There are lots of devs that I know that are like, I love doing development work. I hate testing. I don't want to do it. That's why we have testers. I'm content to let them do their thing, you know. Um, I can't predict where it's going to be, like what company's going to have what culture. But I know too that if you if you try to get somebody that does everything, it's like they're not going to do anything really well. They're not going to have like a masterful approach to the stuff that's important, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I have I have seen a mix of that, but yeah, it's like fifty fifty, I think. Okay, which is interesting because your company is called Arch DevOps. Now, my understanding of DevOps and kind of the gripes I've been reading about on Reddit is that developers are, are kind of feeling the pressure of, of having to be a system engineer, a software tester. They're, they're, it's like this multi, new multifaceted role that's taking over the tech industry. Um, do you find that that's the case or does DevOps still permit developers to just be developers? Well, DevOps does allow for people to have certain roles like it I'll, let me let me step back for a second because I'm gonna I'm gonna talk myself into a corner here I don't want that to happen um, so DevOps really is it's more of a mindset okay so first off DevOps is it's not it's not really intended to be a role like hey I'm a DevOps engineer okay well then they're like a full stack engineer they're trying to do everything but if a company is practicing DevOps, then that means at any stage 
of the day, any stage of the release, we should always have releasable software ready to go. So anything that gets in the way of that, any kind of like wonky process or flaky tests or, you know, we don't have a certain system in place, there's something that's manual and whoop, that person's out on sick leave or whatever, like that's like the antithesis of DevOps, right? So so any company that's employing that DevOps mindset, it's what can we do to make sure that if we have like a, an easy button that anybody in the company can push that will just deploy instantly whatever we've got on tap and not have to worry about it. That's DevOps. Um, as far as what we do as a company, if people invite us in and they say, can you help do DevOps here? Like, we're not going to be like, yeah, we've got 17 DevOps people that we just sprinkle around and they just do their magic, right? It's like, no, what's the actual challenge that you've got? Like, are you having trouble releasing software? And if so, why? Is it because you can't get quality? How long is your testing taking? Okay, do you have a test strategy? Do you have a test plan? Do, you, do your people know how to test? Do they know how to file bugs? Where are the rework loops? Um how well are you scoping? You know, are you, are you hitting your estimates? You think it's going to take three weeks and it takes 13? Like, wow, why? You know, what happened? Are you trying to bite off more than you can chew? There's all kinds of ways where you can plug in a particular person. Could be a developer, could be an architect, could be an automation engineer, could be a, a continuous delivery specialist, whatever it is. It's meant to remove the block that keeps a company from applying DevOps the way it was meant to be put in. So that's really interesting. Thanks for that explanation. It definitely has made it more clear. I've, I've been in DevOps environments before where it actually wasn't 100% clear what, mm -hmm. what we were, you know, what DevOps actually meant. Yeah. Like, uh, what does it mean to you? What's, what's your interpretation? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. And there's always keywords in, in, in tech, you know, agile was like hot for a while and then Kanban and all these kind of ways of, of doing things. Whereas DevOps seems to be more like, you, know, you do see job titles. You always see job titles as like DevOps engineer or DevOps, you know, whatever. You you do see that a lot, at least in Canada. But um, yeah, here, one of here the things too. that here you, too. yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, you you when you evaluate a team. Um, so one of the things I'm seeing a lot in in the tech industry here is uh, where the QA departments are often under fire, but the development departments aren't examined as closely. And what I'm seeing as a QA specialist is uh, situations where uh, development teams could, could kind of uh, standardize things, you know, like, for example, when you start seeing the same bugs over and over again, you know, mm -hmm. where, where that could be standardized, when you evaluate uh, a company that you're about to provide services for, do you also check how the developers do their work? Absolutely. Um, Okay. Just between you and me and everybody else listening, uh, that is where the bugs come from. I love my developer friends, okay, but y'all are writing bugs, and that's why they're there, okay? Either either there was a, a requirement that was missed, or there's some aspect of the software that you didn't know it was going to do, and you're focused here, and the bug is over here, and what you're doing here affects things up and downstream. That's a thing. Um but yeah, it, it's it's every aspect of the work. Like from the time that a customer says, you know, it'd be really cool if the software did blah, blah. And then they take that and turn it into reality. 
testing is one is one piece of the puzzle. So I always look at how developers are doing the work, how they're estimating, you know, where, you know, hopefully if they're not, if they're not logging bugs in terms of like, where was it? What part of the system? What flavor of it? What's the urgency? What's the criticality of it? That sort of thing. They really need to be because then it's not subjective. Like, man, I always seem to get the same bug from, uh, Joe Bob over in application, whatever. Um, then it's just your word against theirs. But if you've got like a, a neutral, I'm just reporting what I see. It's like, okay, well, how come we keep having these same kind of bugs? You know, is there a way to just eliminate this class of bug altogether? That's a good, it's a good talking point. And then it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before about when people feel slighted. It's like, now I'm not the one sliding them. It's, it's this piece of cold, unfeeling software that everybody's using, and it's just data. How could you be mad at data, you know? It it kind of, it adds a little bit of an extra layer of protection, like, great, they're not pissed off at me. They're pissed off at that that board over there that's yelling about, like, keep making the same bugs. Like, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting because uh, one of the other things that I it's, just, it's so refreshing to actually have a conversation about the tech industry. I've got to say, by the way, just a side note. It's fun. Um, well, it's refreshing for me too because I don't have to edit this episode once I'm done. I I bring them out, you know. Neither do I. I pay somebody to do hey, that. So that's cheating. <laughs> it's called efficiency. That's right. Um, uh, one of the things that I would love to see more of in the tech industry is documentation. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a bit of a um. <laughs> I, I'm very, very, very pro documentation. Everybody who's ever worked with me knows this, um, almost to a point where it's it's over documented. But that's how I work. That that's how I organize things. Um, and especially as a that's a logical side of the right brain QA person is is the, the documentation. Uh, so do do you find that um, in in your clients and in in the uh, the people that you've worked with is is document is documentation really valued or is it st- still something that the tech industry needs to really kind of embrace a little more they do need to embrace it a little more and it's a mix with our clients as to how valuable they find it i've had people that i've worked with where they are absolutely anal about documenting everything like to the point where even somebody like you would be like, this is a bit much, guys. Like, this is taking, you'd be like, go faster, document less. I can't believe I'm saying this. Julie, the documentation queen, <laughs> do it less, guys. Um, but I think, too, that there's kind of a stigma because here in here in the U.S., I think the the general tone is move fast and break things documentation is one of those things that's like, that slows things down. Why would you slow down? Move fast, break things. Come on. You know, we'll, we'll get there. And, and yet then they complain in the next breath about why does it take so long to onboard people? Like we hire somebody, we have to pay like six, seven figures to get somebody in the door that actually knows what the heck they're doing. And it's like, well, you don't have any documentation. I was talking with a good friend about this just yesterday. And he's like, they don't document anything here. They just run in and hopefully somebody can train you. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. Now, what I would say is in order to keep up in a fast moving world, um, regardless of what work methodology you're using, you mentioned, you mentioned agile and stuff. Um, the documentation should always 
serve at least two roles. Okay, so where the documentation is, who needs to know about it? Well, if it's the developers that need to understand the system, then the documentation can live in the code. So like as they're doing it, they can see little bits and pieces explaining each piece of code. That's a form of documentation. If you're a tester, then perhaps writing your tests in like a given when then format or using behavior driven development, that's a good solution because not only does it enable you to like automate your testing without writing a bunch of code. In fact, sometimes you don't have to write any code at all, but now everybody else can see what's being tested. It's not just a gob of code like, well, that looks good. I hope it works, right? It's, it, they can literally see what's being tested. You get that transparency. So anytime that you, you can basically kill two birds with one stone as far as documentation goes, then it, it tends to work a lot better. If you're just saying, hey, we're going to put this in the wiki, we're going to put that over there, and it's just going to be – it's going to get forgotten about. It's going to be stale, and nobody's going to be looking at it, and people will go in and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe how much I've got to update – scrap it and then they don't use it for anything it's wasting time but i i like documentation i think it's a good thing people learn differently people learn by doing some people learn by watching some by reading the readers it's like what can you give them so yeah i find documentation while it might uh, feel time consuming at first um and, and you're right it always has to be updated but that's where you know the person who who is like me enjoys updating it right mm -hmm. i mean i'm somebody who 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 loves taking new information putting it and organizing it and making it easily accessible mm -hmm. um but i find it actually cuts down on time where for example, uh, when you work in quality assurance, you can refer to a document that says, oh, these are actually the required fields. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes developers forget because they haven't, you know, written it down anywhere or whatever. Or somebody in marketing wants to know, right? Somebody in marketing might want to know, hey, or somebody in sales, you know, I have to present to this client. We need to know what the, how this thing works. I need like plain English documents right, right now, like stat. And you can just go, here you go. Yep. Oh. And it's like, whoa, right. you know, they, they are so well served when, they're, when their QA or their dev department start documenting things in plain English. It's like you become their favorite person. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Well, as long as you don't be like, I told you so. I told you you needed documentation. No. Remember? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, unless it's playful. There's their environments to do that. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left. Uh, Fritz, I want to talk about the U.S.-Canadian differences in technology. Okay. You just mentioned one, actually which is really interesting because you talked about how in the United States, it, 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 the, the culture tends to be move fast, break things, you know, uh, let the users test it, as in we've seen in the gaming industry where you have early access, mm -hmm. which I think ruined gaming. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah exactly, in quotation marks. Yep. I'm, I'm seeing that culture permeating uh, Canadian tech companies now where Canadian tech used to be very kind of, we're, we're slow. We're slow to adapt to and, and, and innovate. It's just how we are. It's part of our personality. I tend to, um, it's interesting because as, as organized as I am, I feel very American. Yeah. I have worked for American companies for half of my career and the other half for Canadians. I have enjoyed American culture far more than Canadian culture. And I think it might have something to do with, you know, there's an expression in the in the TV show Halt and Catch Fire, which is another tech industry related TV show, where the um, the CEO of a tech company in Texas says, you know, 
At least in Texas, they stab you in the front. Mm. And he was talking about the differences between the tech industry in Texas and the tech industries in the coasts of the United States, right? The coastal tech industry. Mm -hmm. So we've really got three cultures to talk about here. Canada, we've got, you know, Southern U.S. tech culture, and then we've got uh, the coastal tech culture. Uh, what are some, I, 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 I don't know if you've done any work. Have you done any work for Canadian clients? No, and I've never done okay, work Okay, so for, you don't have no idea. I don't, and I'm here in St. Louis. Okay. I'm not in the south or the coast. I'm in the Midwest. I'm like, right. I don't know how to answer your question. I'm joking. Yeah, no, but it is, it is curious because is, I wonder if the Midwest culture is more like the Texas kind of you know, tech industry where a person gives you their word and, and that's it, that's all. Whereas, you know, the, I guess, I guess it, it's hard for me to explain this because I felt so connected to the characters in Halt and Catch Fire. Mm -hmm. Like they essentially had a company in Texas and they moved it to San Fran or to Silicon Valley mm -hmm. and um, the tech culture completely changed. And I wonder if that's because it was a tech industry focused center. So St. Louis is not a tech industry focused town, right? I mean, it's, it's not its primary industry. It's, it's an industry. So around right. here, we have a lot of finance and we have a lot of biomed. There's ag. Um, there's, a, there's a big startup presence here. There's probably three startup incubators that I can just think of off the top of my head. So there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of technology, but even in the companies that don't seem to be tech focused, you open them up and it's like, there's tech all over the place in here. You know, like I was just talking with somebody recently who is the president of a company and they're in, they're in an industry where they go and they fix like the big doors, like on, on store sides, like cargo bay doors, that kind of thing. They fix those. They have garage doors. They do refrigeration units, all this stuff. But then you talk with them and it's like they they are just saturated with technology on the inside. You never know it on the outside looking in. But you get in there and it's like it's everywhere. Oh my goodness. So yeah, I mean there's there's a lot of technology, but it's like tip of the iceberg stuff. The actual tech companies that are out there moving and shaking, yeah, obviously. But then the other ninety eight percent of them that are doing telecom or they're doing, you know, ticket management or whatever, it's like there's a lot of technology in there. So yeah, I think I think the the main difference in in culture is when you have a huge injection of money. Mm -hmm. I think that that's what um, you know in, in the TV show was the ma major difference between Texas and Silicon Valley was the injection of money and how it creates a sort of different personality that ends up managing these tech companies. Um, but the the Canadian, it's it's interesting because uh, you've never worked for a Canadian company. We are, you know, you, you just you made a, a joke about us saying sorry, and that is that is so very Canadian. We also have uh, frequently far too many meetings, right? We talk a lot about things. We're not action-oriented as much as Americans are. And I think that's what I appreciate the most about America is kind of this kind of like this action-driven um, culture. Right. I I like it too, but I think that we sometimes are too like impetuous about things like we we moved to action too quick like bang you know and it's like guys like let's let's slow down a little bit and be canadian like let's like take a step back we don't have to run out and just do all the things i mean we for all the things that you like about 
the U.S. and in our work ethic, I mean, we have got the highest incidence of workaholism on the planet. Okay, and yeah. like, I guess if y'all want to emulate us, like, don't emulate that aspect of it, right? It's, I mean, I think the ideal situation would be like kind of blend our two cultures together. So Minnesota probably yeah. has it figured out. They probably have it exactly figured out, like right there, you know, the northernmost state in the U.S. And it's like right up next to Canada. They know they're they're making things happen. You don't hear about it because you only hear about failures around here, but they're probably, yeah, right on. <laughs> I'll have to speak to someone in tech there. But there uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think the, um, I think blending, let's, let's call it the directness of of the the U.S. culture, um, where all of the American colleagues I've ever worked with, whether they were from Texas or anywhere else in the United States, are very blunt, very direct. There's no runaround. They know what they want. They know what how to how, how they want to get it done. You know, uh, it's very clear. So the clarity of that kind of culture that, um, and also the big dreaming culture, which I really appreciate you guys come up with ideas and you actually go for it. <laughs> you know? And and then that's beautiful. But also, like you said, um, you know, a lot of us are contemplating, uh, I work a, a four day work week, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that balance, that work life, like you have children, right? Yeah. And I think the beauty would be to have an American culture where, you can see your kids a lot more. Yeah. I see them right now. They're running around out here. I hope uh, <laughs> I hope your podcast editor is like, why do I keep hearing little kids? Is there some like interference? Like, it's like, oh, my they're, they're actually four kids. Like, <laughs> out there. I go on mute once in a while. I knock on there. But yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I have to think back. Like, I know quite a few Canadians. But like I've never really worked with any of them. So I've never gotten a, a peek or any experience at what the culture is like in tech. So this has really been enlightening for me because I figured tech was tech, right? It's like the same in China and Portugal and Mexico and Canada and everywhere. It's like, no, apparently it's not. So I didn't know that. Yeah, the work culture is very it's 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 the same but it's different, you know, it's a different cultural approach and I think um yeah, uh we have 5 minutes left. I don't want to leave this podcast without just speaking about automation on a general term because it's it's such a ma- major major concern. Uh what are your thoughts about the fear that people have that automation is going to cost them their jobs? that it's going to replace people and that it's going to essentially create perhaps a new depression. Yeah. I, I think it's a founded fear. Um, you know, we've seen, we've seen examples of that happen. Okay. But what, what is more likely to happen is, and I'm probably going to scare people. Yes. Automation is going to eventually take your job. Automation, automation is eventually going to take my job. There's maybe not going to be a need for a CTO later on. That said, it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to wake up the next day and be like, well, I, uh, I'm i out of work now, right? What, what it's going to look like is technology is going to make some breakthroughs, okay? The stuff that's on the cutting edge is like, holy moly, this is going to change the world, right? Um, companies move very slow. Even in a fast-moving country like the U.S., right, it's probably going to take about 20 years for that new whatever killer to be so mainstream that a large company that is afraid of change will adopt it and it'll be so watered down that everybody's going to be using it. 
But at the same time, what's going to happen to each one of us, every single day we're changing. We're learning new things. Your career today, Julie, is nothing like what it was before. And I know we've only talked for a grand total of 90 minutes now because you've been on my podcast and I've been on yours for an hour. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've changed. I've changed. I used to be a developer until I took an arrow to the knee. And now I'm I'm running a business. <laughs> like what? And like I do more marketing and sales than anything else. I never thought like I'd be doing that. But I change. So I don't think that we need to worry about what automation is going to do to our jobs because first it's not going to do it immediately but also we're going to be changing our jobs are going to be changing by nature of what we're doing in the day-to-day so don't be afraid of it don't be afraid of automation it's there to help you um deep down the people that put together solutions that automate mundane tasks are are doing it for the betterment of society so go for it Go forth and conquer. I guess that would be my parting words. <laughs> Wonderful. And on that note, uh, Fritz, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've had a lot of fun. It's been it's been great. Like you said, you know, I've been on your show. Now you're on mine, and it's just been great to uh, have this. It's kind of a freeing conversation for me. <laughs> it's <laughs> almost like I feel like, oh, we can finally talk about technology. Uh, so it's been great. It's been uh, really wonderful. I wish you all the best. I wish that we'd had more time to talk about the business side of things. Maybe we can do that again some other time. Right, please. Um, but yeah, it would be fascinating to hear about uh, what tech leadership feels like. So maybe we'll save that for the, another time. Uh, Fritz, thanks again for being on the show. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Pleasure.